0: Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Wednesday, June the 8th. This week we're discussing the use of antidepressants for children and adolescents. Earlier I spoke to Dr. Andrea Cipriani from the University of Oxford. He is one of the authors of a systematic review and meta-analysis published today, Wednesday, June the 8th. And I began by asking him to explain how common is depression in this younger age group.
1: If we talk about major depressive disorder, it's quite a prevalent disorder in children and adolescents, not as prevalent as in adults, but we are talking, just to give some rough figures, about 3% in school-aged children, which means from 6 to 12 years old, and around 6% in adolescents teenagers, which means 13 to 18 years old. Another important thing to bear in mind is that major depressive disorder in children and adolescents, if compared with major depressive disorders in uh, adults, not only it is still underdiagnosed and undertreated, but also it tends to present in a different way. Depressive symptoms in children and adolescents are rather undifferentiated. You notice more irritability, aggressive behavior, problems at school, and the consequences of depressive episodes in children and adolescents are dramatic because they include impairment in their social functioning, but also in an increased risk of suicidal ideation and attempts.
0: Tell us about guidelines, because clearly this is a very important, potentially troubling, difficult area within medicine, within psychiatry. What are the established guidelines, not just in the UK, but worldwide as well? What are they saying about how clinicians should approach the use of antidepressants given to children and adolescents?
1: International guidelines suggest to start with non-pharmacological interventions, so a psychological intervention for children and adolescents with major depression. The reason being twofold, one is because of the evidence. We have some evidence that psychological, some of the psychological interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy may work for these patients but at the same time, and there's a recent natural meta-analysis showing that these are to interventions that might work. But also because uh, with children and adolescents, we are talking about a developing brain. We are always very cautious when prescribing when medications because we don't really know which are the potential implication in the long term for a developing brain.
0: Just tell us a little bit about the background to your study. It is a systematic review and meta-analysis. So by definition, you've been trawling the literature here. And I gather that the literature itself is problematic. But we'll come to that maybe in a moment. Just tell us about the background, the number of trials you're looking at, the number of drugs that you're able to assess.
1: We carried out a systematic review which means we looked at all the electronic data sets, the registry of trials, we contacted pharmaceutical industry and authors of the paper in order to have a comprehensive and replicable transparent way of collecting all available data and our search was updated up to May last year because it took quite a while to run all the statistical analysis. So we collect all the data and we found 34 randomized controlled trials, double blind studies. So the design of the study is quite homogeneous across the different uh, studies. And 34 RCTs and 14 antidepressants so this is the amount of evidence just to give you uh, an idea we started with about 6,000 records identified by the database search so it's a huge task in terms of scrutiny of the available evidence and these 34 trials uh, involve 5,260 participants with a mean age between 9 and 18 years old after that, we carried out not really a meta-analysis, not a simple pairwise meta-analysis, we did a network meta-analysis, which is in a sort of more sophisticated way of analyzing the data because with a network meta-analysis, we are able to compare interventions that are not really compared pairwise within a trial. So if we have a trial comparing a versus B and have another trial comparing A versus C and no trials comparing B versus C with a natural meta-analysis we are able to calculate the indirect evidence comparing B versus C so we use all available information and fill the gaps uh, comparing head-to-head treatments and that's the reason why as you can see in figure 3 of the paper we have a league table with all the cells filled with a comparative estimate of efficacy and uh, tolerability.
0: Thank you very much. Now, we must talk about results. And the results are are fairly stark. I mean, just from my glancing at the paper now, you can give us more detail. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the paper is really saying that based on your analysis, there isn't really justification for using drugs, uh, pharmacological interventions for depression, with the exception of maybe one. Fluoxetine seems to be the only pharmacological intervention where there's any potential benefit in this group. Is that right?
1: Yes and no. I mean, yes, because it's true that looking at the overall evidence, the benefits outweigh the risks in terms of efficacy and tolerability only for fluoxetine. This is pretty clear from the data. And I have to say this is not really new in terms of what the evidence showed in the past. What is new is that we the comparative effectiveness into this analysis and we found interesting results. For instance, we found that Imipramine, venlafaxine, and Duloxetine had the worst profile in terms of tolerability leading to significantly more discontinuation than placebo. And we looked also at suicidality because it's a big issue with antidepressants in children, adolescents and young adults. And we found that Benlafaxine was linked with an increased risk of engaging in suicidal behaviors and ideation compared with not only with placebo, but also with other five antidepressants. The problem of this and the strength of these results is probably limited by the quality of the data. And the quality is not simply the quality as we tend to express it in terms of risk of bias, but the problem is that we know now that using only the summary data from the trials, we don't have a clear picture of what's happening to our patients. So the main limitation, but it is true for all this kind of analysis, is that we use pooled data from individual studies while we need to have access to the individual patient data.
0: So why can you not get access to that data?
1: It's very difficult because many studies are carried out by companies and now companies have started giving the individual patient data but the problem is that as this is a systematic review ideally we should have all the individual patient data from all the studies included in the review and it's very difficult time-consuming.
0: And it goes back a long time historically presumably.
1: exactly. Some of the data are not anymore available because they were in um, folders that are, I don't know where, where they are. I have to say that uh, 65% of the trials were funded by pharmaceutical companies. So it's not only about data from companies, also researchers tend to be a bit jealous about their data. We are aware of the problem and we think that transparency is crucial now in science. For this reason, with the publication of this paper, we will also publish the full data set we've analyzed in order to make it replicable for uh, checking because everybody can make mistakes of course but also for people who will do an update in the future of this analysis they can use the work we've done so far. Is
0: it encouraging now, is the landscape better now in terms of transparency? So if you were starting afresh now doing trials in this area would you be having the difficulties of accessing individual patient data you have experienced historically through this systematic review?
1: The situation is definitely better now, uh, there's a lot of discussion in the scientific journals and I have to say that for instance the World Health Organization Uh, the U.S. Institute of Medicine, uh, and other international institutions. They recently called for uh, a transformation of the existing scientific culture to one where data sharing should be the norm. And unfortunately, the process has been delayed for a series of reasons and what I'm trying to say is that this delay has negative consequences for both medical research and patients' outcomes. We don't have to be naive. I think transparency carries some risks and for instance, patients' privacy must be guaranteed by policy and technological measure. However, I think that 100,000 of, of patients worldwide have agreed to participate in trials aiming to find out better treatments for their disorders and ultimately to help the progress of medical science. So access to raw clinical data provides, I think, a unique opportunity for validation and replication of results. And reuse of this primary study data for secondary analysis like our systematic review but also it allows more sophisticated statistical elaboration we can like time to event data or subgroup analysis and we can explore in depth all specific factors that might affect treatment outcome at the individual patient level and so do the so-called precision medicine.
0: Thank you very much and Turning to, I suppose, another key finding, if you like, given what we've just discussed about the pharmacological interventions, in terms of children and adolescents with depression, this clearly puts the spotlight on psychotherapy, doesn't it, for intervention in this group?
1: Yes, there's a, there's a debate about psychological intervention because sometimes uh, their efficacy is overestimated. We have the so-called sponsorship bias in pharmacological intervention when the sponsor possibly not consciously try to overemphasize the efficacy of the intervention. The same applies to other non-pharmacological interventions like psychotherapies. The idea is probably the next step is to run and carry out a a natural meta-analysis comparing pharmacological versus non-pharmacological in order to have a proper ranking of treatment for these people. The big problem with natural meta-analysis is the so-called consistency and transitivity, which are assumptions. Basically, it means that we are comparing similar things across the network, and sometimes the population, the intervention are so different between pharmacological and psychological intervention that this might be not feasible. However, if we look at the evidence now, a psychological intervention should be the first-line treatment. What I think is that in some circumstances, like when the psychological interventions are not available, and I'm not referring only to the long waiting list, but low- and middle-income countries, we don't have any psychological intervention available. Let's think of the refugees' problem, for instance. Now we have some data suggesting that probably we have tools tackle this terrible illness which is depression and it may happen also in children and adolescents. So the positive result of this meta-analysis is that we have data supporting fluoxetine and fluoxetine is one of the WHO medicine. That
0: On the essential medicines list, yeah.
1: So everywhere in the world fluoxetine is available so we have a tool and we don't need a psychiatrist to do it. Also nurses and GPs can
0: Primary can care, sure, yeah. sure. Now, that's, that's an important message too, about sort of about accessibility, isn't it? Pleasure talking to you. That's uh, Dr. Andrea Cipriani on the line from the University of Oxford. And this podcast accompanies the paper that you are one of the authors on, published on Wednesday, June the 8th, 2016. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet.
1: Thanks to you, Richard. Very nice to talk with you.